Hey, it's Stephen Lacey, executive editor of Latitude Media. And as you know, we co-produce Catalyst and the Carbon Copy with our friends at Canary Media. And we are barreling toward the end of the year, and that means that it is Canary Media's pivotal year-end donation drive. If you support this podcast, if you support the clean energy journalism you get every day from Canary, please make a donation to their newsroom. You can go to canarymedia.com slash donate. Canary is a 501c3 nonprofit newsroom, so your financial support helps them survive and thrive and be a leading voice in the energy transition. And your donation is tax deductible. So again, go to canarymedia.com slash donate to stand up and do your part. And if you want to support the journalism team at Latitude Media, just go sign up for our newsletter. You'll get all of our reporting and upcoming research on the frontier trends in renewables, storage, virtual power plants, carbon removal, and more. It's at latitudemedia.com slash newsletter. So go support Canary Media with a tax-deductible donation. Go support Latitude Media by signing up to the newsletter. And thank you very much. Now, on to the show. From the studios of Latitude Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Based on my expectations, this is, it's significantly restrictive. Um, it is a pretty solid bulletproof um, way of, of keeping China out of the U.S. battery supply chain. Well, I think we all knew that the United States government was going to try to make it difficult for Chinese companies to participate in the bonanza of the Inflation Reduction Act-driven EV tax credits. What we didn't know until now is just how hard they were going to make it. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so 2023 has been the year of guidance from the U.S. government around uh, the actual rule setting following the Inflation Reduction Act. And one of the areas where the guidance has been most important and honestly most complex has been in the electric vehicle tax credits, which provide up to $7,500 per vehicle for passenger vehicles um, if you qualify in a bunch of different ways. Back in April, we had a conversation with Sam Jaffe, who's my friend and a battery market guru, and also the senior director of business development at Adionix, to talk about all the complexities of the rules around uh, the EV tax credits in particular, where you can source batteries from, where you can source critical minerals from, and so on. And it was complicated already at the time. But as we knew, there was still more guidance to come. And in particular, the thing that we were waiting on was how we were going to define foreign entities of concern, largely because it left open-ended the question of what role China could or could not play, and Chinese companies, I should add, in the EV supply chain. 
Well, that guidance finally came out late last week, and uh, it, it's actually pretty monumental. I think the industry is still working through it, but it's going to have significant implications for both qualification for the tax credits in the near term and also what the supply chain ends up looking like, both domestically and internationally. So we brought Sam back on to do a quick update. Uh, at the beginning of this podcast, you'll hear a quick conversation between me and Sam that we held this week to just talk about this foreign entities of concern guidance that just came out. And then you'll hear the original conversation that Sam and I had in April, which is all still applicable today um, and speaks to the broader question of sourcing for EVs and EV batteries to qualify for the tax credits in the United States and the implications that's starting to have on manufacturing. This has all still been true since he and I had the conversation. You've seen more and more announcements and more and more factories being set up. So uh, please enjoy uh, two parts of a conversation with Sam Jaffe, one this week, one back in April, all on the topic of where are we going to make all the batteries and where are we going to source all the minerals for the electric vehicles that we buy in North America. Sam, welcome back. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking some time on short notice to talk about the to talk about foreign entities of concern. Um, so we've talked before about the EV tax credits that came in the Inflation Reduction Act and all the sourcing requirements, the complex set of sourcing requirements that come along with qualifying for them. The latest thing that happened is that last week we got additional guidance on, I don't know, you tell me, but it feels like one of the biggest remaining open items here, which was how we were going to define rules around foreign entities of concern and battery sourcing therein. So I want to I want to talk about what that latest guidance is and then what it portends about qualification for EVs for this credit and like all the rejiggering of the global battery supply chain that comes with that. Um, so let's start with what what was the latest guidance? So essentially, they're, they're defining the term foreign entity of concern for the purposes of the, the tax credits. And uh, they, they list out what makes a foreign entity of concern, which is essentially a company in China, Russia, North Korea, or Iran. And they, they go into some more detail about that, such as the percentage ownership of the of the uh, Communist Party in China, or, or, or you know, if it's a joint venture, for instance, how much is owned by the Communist Party? How much is owned by the Chinese government? Um, and what would qualify? And that that number is now twenty five percent. So it can't be, it can't be a Chinese ownership having ha, Chinese company having an ownership of twenty five percent or more, or else it becomes a foreign entity of concern and therefore disqualifies you for the tax credit. So. It's obviously going to vary by different parts of the supply chain, but on its face at the high level, you know, we know China is pretty dominant in various Chinese companies and China, depending on what segment you're talking about, it's fairly dominant in various places within the battery supply chain. At the highest level, do you view this guidance as significantly restricting the ability for EVs to qualify for the tax credit for the next few years? Or do you think like this is pretty easy. Based on my expectations, this is, it, it's significantly restrictive. Um, my expectations was there were going to be a lot of loopholes and a lot of ways for this to, 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 to snake around the FEOC um, label, but it, it's a pretty, it is a pretty solid bulletproof um, way of, of keeping the, the Chinese, the, keeping China out of the U.S. battery supply chain. 
Um, there, that's not to say that there aren't loopholes. There is a significant loophole, which is a de minimis ruling, which essentially says if there's a small amount of material come, that, that does get its way into from China, um, then that will, and, and specifically of materials that don't have high value. And that's clearly talking about things like binder in the in the uh, cathode and and electrolyte salts and maybe electrolyte solvents also and maybe additives you know some some of the very tiny amounts of material that go into the battery um, that is still going to be able to come in at least for the next two years until 2026 um, so there is a loophole but there there aren't other loopholes and I, th I think a lot of people, we're uh, expecting there to be this to be a, a, a very you know kind of a spaghetti colander, and it, it's not. It's it's a solid stainless steel bowl. Mark your calendars for May thirtieth at one p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. Let's talk about where in particular this presents a real challenge. I mean, I think of China in particular as being dominant in, in refining of a bunch of battery metals and minerals. So if you're getting into sort of both anode and cathode materials and the precursors to those materials, that feels like it's, at least given the supply chain today, pretty tough to avoid going through China, or at least going through Chinese-owned entities. Like, I know this is a big issue in nickel, for example, where a lot of the nickel production is in Indonesia, but it's actually, like, predominantly Chinese-owned, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it gets really complex, but but essentially there's there's two tax credits. There's one for comp battery components and one for strategic minerals. And the minerals are not going to come into play until uh, 2025. And But the components, meaning the actual electrode material, the actual, um, you know, the separator and, and where the battery itself is made, where the battery pack is put together, that comes into effect on January 1st, 2024. So um, the where this gets really complex is is in the strategic minerals. So starting in 2025, you can't have material coming from a 25% or more owned joint venture. So for instance, in Indonesian nickel, that's going to disqualify some suppliers of nickel, um, where the Chinese are are majority shareholders in some of the joint ventures. It's gonna it's going to disqualify some of the Congolese cobalt where Chinese companies own a majority share of the cobalt producers. Um, and, and graphite is, of course, going to be one of the most severely uh, challenged areas of battery materials because today all graphite essentially is coming from China. Um, and and we have now have essentially two years to, uh, 
to make a, a, a North American graphite supply chain, which is possible, but the, that's the, the, I'm sure that a lot of people would ask for a lot more time than that. Yeah, and it even applies, I mean, even to lithium, right? I mean, obviously a lot of lithium refining takes place in China, but even setting that aside, I think Greenbushes, which is, if I remember, is the largest lithium mine in the world is like 26% owned by Tianqi, which is a Chinese company. Right. So there's one one lithium mine that's that's disqualified as well as some of the Argentinian lithium mine lithium uh salt extraction facilities also. So, I mean, graphite is maybe the most extreme example as you said. Like realistically speaking, are we going to build up enough graphite production in North America in, you know, a, in a year essentially? to be able to meet the North American market? Or is it just more realistic that like, unless this guidance changes, you know, EVs are just not going to qualify for these tax credits for at least a few years? I think we're going to see some, some challenge to, especially on the graphite side, definitely. I mean, there, there are graphite facilities being built today that should happen very relatively quickly and have a chance to be producing significant amounts of graphite in 2026. Um, but that that's going to be a tremendous challenge. What about the other thing that has been in the news, you know, setting aside the um, mineral sourcing stuff, you know, there have been some JVs announced between auto OEMs and large Chinese battery manufacturers. I think the best known one is, is Ford and CATL. They were going to build a big factory, I believe, in Michigan. There's already been a bunch of pushback on that. I mean, this basically puts the nail in the coffin for doing that, I assume. It doesn't, actually. I, I think that the coffin might have already been built for that plant anyway, but this, they're, they're actually, there's some tremendous uh, gymnastics in the language of this guidance that goes around what happens if it's a licensing play, which is what, what Ford is doing with CATL. They're licensing technology from CATL. There's going to be about 100 CATL technicians at the, at the factory to make sure it's done correctly. Um, but what this language lays out in the in the guidance is um, that ensures that those the the licensor does not fully control the relationship, that the control remains with the U.S. based or 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 free trade partner country based company, and and it explicitly lays out an outline for how that might work and how how you can ensure that it's not. Essentially, what they didn't want to have happen is for the licensing licensing relationship to just be a, 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 a disguised joint venture. That it has to be a true licensing where you're just paying for the IP license and that's it. And it lays out the language for that to be allowed. So, are there you know? Can you think of this guidance in the context of winners and losers here? Like. Is the winner basically anybody who's producing any battery related EV battery related thing outside of China with no Chinese influence, and the loser is anyone who is? Is it as simple as that? I think that the the winners are those those companies that are trying to build a U.S. supply chain, and you know if if there were leaks that allowed the Chinese uh, to to come in through through you know various side entrances or back entrances. Um, it makes that job that much harder. And so I think that that's the, the significant winners. I think the car manufacturers are, are, are subtle winners in the sense that there is a two-year time frame to get this to work. They, you know, they can build a tracing, a tracing process 
and a way of ensuring that all of their materials come from the right sources. So I think the car manufacturers were afraid that if it was January 1st, 2024, when all of this started, then they wouldn't have a chance. So they're, I think they're relieved fr- from that perspective. We've talked about the materials and the making of batteries themselves. What about, what about buying equipment from China for factories that are being set up in the U.S. or, or other free trade agreement countries? How, does that come into play here? It does, yeah. So, so my company, Adionics, is building a, a factory in the U.S., and we need to use we need to purchase Japanese and Korean equipment. But interestingly, there's specific language in here about control software that for that equipment um, that the control software not be made in China, and, and and you have to prove that that's not coming from an FEOC either. So it, there's there's very specific guidance on on what is and isn't allowed in in a, a project that's going to be partially funded by the DOE. Awesome, Sam. Thank you for. Again, for coming on on short notice to talk through foreign entities of concern. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was the update that I recorded with Sam this week about the Treasury's new guidance about foreign entities of concern. But back in April, Sam and I talked about the broader set of Treasury guidance around the IRA's EV tax credits. That conversation provides a lot of context to the update that you just heard, uh, so it's worth a listen. Again, here's my conversation with Sam from April. Sam, welcome back to Catalyst. Thank you very much, Shale. Good to be here. So we're recording this in the afternoon of the day that Treasury released its guidance, initial guidance, final guidance? What is this? Uh, final initial guidance. <laughs> <laughs> Treasury released its final initial partway done, totally done, baked and halfway baked guidance on how to qualify for the EV tax credits that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. And I want to talk through the details of it and the ramifications of it. But first, let's bring ourselves up to up to the, the present. So you and I chatted on this podcast some months back in the wake of the Inflation Reduction Act passing when where the bill had set all these rules for qualifying for up to a $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles and complex set of rules. But despite the complexity of the, those rules, I think you at the time, and this was soon after the bill passed, you, you were pretty bullish on the impacts that it would have on the domestic supply chain in the United States for battery everything from battery minerals to battery manufacturing. So... Bring me up to speed from then to now. What have we seen happen? So we've had a lot of activity. On the uh, guidance per- perspective, we've had the Treasury Department issue a white paper in December that, that talked about this concept of constituent materials. So it's kind of an interim step between strategic minerals, which is one half of the, of the, tax, of the EV tax credit, and component battery components, which is the other half of the EV tax credit. And in between, there's this constituent materials. And they said, we don't know how we're going to handle this. We'll let you know by the end of March. And then this morning, they issued their full guidance on how constituent materials will be, will be qualified. Um, so the, that's, that's on the, uh, the update and guidance of, of the IRA. Um, in terms of, an, of, of the actual progress of building out a supply chain in North America, there's been enormous act, amount of activity and I still think there, there's going to be another uh, big uh, jump in activity over the next six months with this guidance. 
So uh, among that is the announcements of several large cathode production plants, most of which are going to be located in Canada. Um, We have the Tesla uh, factory in Mexico that was announced, and a a new gigafactory and car factory that will be built in Mexico. Um, We have the CATL Ford battery plant. Uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's really a Ford battery plant with CATL, uh, technology guidance, but, um, that, that was announced. That's going to be a 30 gigawatt hour plant making LFP batteries. Um, and then just before this morning, uh, late afternoon yesterday, news broke that it looks like Tesla and CATL also are talking about building a Texas based LFP, uh, battery plant. Um, so, so the the announcements have just been coming fast and furious throughout the entire supply chain. And can we attribute that basically as a direct result of the IRA? Do you think this, any of those plants would have? I mean, presumably, if you're announcing a plant, like it's been in the works a bit longer, or is it possible that you know folks woke up to the IRA nine, ten months ago and said, okay, like hyperspeed, we need to cite and announce a new battery manufacturing plant. I think that companies throughout the supply chain have been planning on building plants regardless. Um, but the, the, the location of those plants in North America and free trade partner countries is what's new. And, and we've actually seen a shift, in some cases, a shift of battery plants that were planned for Europe where they said, we're going we're gonna to stop developing this and instead turn to building a plant in the U.S., Frayer did that, Northvolt did that, and a couple others have, and Volkswagen also talked about doing that. So I think we could pretty safely say then that the indications over the the nine months since the bill passed are that it was sort of working as intended, right? Because the point of having all these domestic content provisions in the tax credit was to attract manufacturing to the U.S. predominantly, right? So it seems to have been working, basically. It seems to have been working, um, and not just in building car factories, which I think probably would have been happening anyway, but also in building battery factories and the entire supply chain along there. It, it definitely is, is happening, and, and it probably wouldn't be happening. A, a very small proportion of this would be happening without the IRA. So let's talk about the controversy that that caused then, and in sort of two categories. One is with our geopolitical allies in other countries who have generally not been super excited about all these domestic content provisions. And the second being even domestically, where as the guidance has started to come out, um, there's been sort of an internal fight in the United States about, are we taking this, the domestic content uh, intent of the legislation seriously enough? So can you kind of walk me through the like how you think about all the noisy fighting that has taken place about this? Yeah, I think internationally there's certainly been a big uh, disagreement from coming, especially from Europe and Japan, from Western Europe and 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 Eastern Europe, uh, the UK and Japan, which are all of which are strong U.S. allies, but do not have free trade treaties. And um, interestingly. Uh, Biden slipped in just 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 before the uh, the the shot clock uh, went away. He slipped in a Japan battery materials free trade agreement through executive order, 
Um, and we, we can come back to that because I think there's significance in that. But but that clearly there there are international disputes between allies that have to be um, that are that are going to be uh, handled and and probably negotiated through. Um, I think that the 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 biggest winners though of the of the other countries that are involved, Australia and Korea and Chile are the are by far the biggest winners. They all have free trade agreements with the US and are going to come out looking very good from this. In particular because of lithium, I assume. I mean Australia and Chile are where Chile is where most of the lithium uh, in brines comes from. Australia is where most of the lithium in hard rock comes from. So that's why those two and then Korea because companies like LG Chem make batteries. Make batteries and and also there's quite a bit a big entire battery supply chain in Korea also. Nothing compared to what's in China, but it, it, it is significant too. All right. So I think we'll come back to that because the significance of um, what the treasury guidance today Im- is impacted by these countries and what exists in these countries. Before we get to that, maybe let's just do a quick refresher. Um, can you just walk through the two components of the EV tax credit, what it takes at the high level from the bill to comply with each? Sure. So there are two parts to the EV tax credit. One is battery components and one is strategic minerals. Strategic minerals is are the minerals that are extracted from the ground and then processed into uh, battery materials. The battery components are the finished electrolyte where the electrolyte uh, slurry is put onto the foil which happens at the battery factory, as well as the separator, the electrolyte, the foils themselves. And um, in, in the case of the strategic minerals, you, the, there is a percentage requirement of the total value of all the strategic minerals that must come from the U.S. or free trade partner countries. And that percent starts at, for, for strategic minerals, it starts this year at 40% of the value has to come from the U.S. or free trade partner countries. And that goes up 10% a year till eventually you get to 80% requirement. Um, For the components portion, uh, it's starting at 50% this year, has to be made in North America, and it goes up 10% a year until eventually 100%. So in other words, you have to make the battery cell itself, has to be manufactured in North America, U.S., Mexico, or Canada, um, and the min- minerals have to come from the U.S. or free trade partner countries. Um, now, interestingly, there's a big gap. There's a big hole in the donut there between minerals and components, and that's what today's guidance really laid out was they're, they're, they're calling us constituent materials. So in other words, you take the lithium itself that's been processed into let's say lithium hydroxide, and you turn it into, you you combine that with the nickel and and the cobalt um, into a cathode active material. And that's the powder that's sent to the battery factory in North America. Um, Now, according to this guidance, those constituent materials essentially fall under the category of strategic minerals. The cathode material can be made in a free trade partner uh, country and then ship to the U.S., and it will count as strategic uh, towards that strategic general number. Right. So that's that's the crux, I think, of where the most of the debate has been 
around this guidance. So before we get to it, critical minerals side of this always was U.S. or free trade agreement countries. Within the list of free trade agreement countries includes the countries that happen to produce the most, at least lithium, which is Chile and Australia. Um, so that makes lithium sourcing, all else equal, relatively easy, right? Right. Um, not necessarily so for nickel, cobalt, manganese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where the supply chains are a little bit different. But from a qualification perspective and from a, again, it comes down to sort of the portion of the total value of those critical minerals that comes from a U.S. or free trade agreement country. Like, is lithium a big enough piece of the stack that, you know, if you source your lithium from a, US, a free trade agreement country, plus maybe some of your copper or something like that, then you're in good shape? Or do you really need to go like, mineral by mineral and say, okay, every, you know, every one of these or, you know, most of these big ones we need to get from one of these countries. So, so two things. One is um, you're talking about the lithium from, from the ground or the water in the ground, which is coming from Chile and Australia. Um, however, in the case of Australia, they dig up the, the rock called spodumene and then they ship it to China to be processed into lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. And that processing uh, part of the supply chain is actually done outside of a free trade partner uh, country. Um, so that that raises complexities. Um, in terms of your, your question about the value of the lithium as a pr pr proportion of overall, it, no, it's, that's a pretty small portion. The, by far the biggest uh, for most of these batter most of these electric vehicle batteries uh, of all of the minerals is going to be nickel. Um, and then lithium and cobalt probably fall in second, but but the 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 single biggest uh, number to to shoot for is the the nickel itself, and that's a problem because most nickel is coming from Indonesia, which is not a free trade partner country. Okay, so then on balance, critical minerals component here sort of difficult to qualify for. Um, how about the, let's flip to the other side for a second, then we'll talk about this in-betweener category, but how hard are we learning the battery components part is to, to qualify for? In this case, again, not free trade agreement country, so you need to be making the battery itself, uh, or at least the battery components in North America, which presumably is why we've seen all these announcements that you described before about battery manufacturing in North America. Does it look like we are going to have sufficient domestic supply to meet the market in the near term? Um, so let's, let's define your term over the next 12 to 24 months, we're still going to be living in a world where most electric vehicles sold are luxury or near luxury vehicles, whether, whether it's a, a Hummer, uh, EV or even, a, a you know, Kia EV six, it's, it's still a 50,000 plus vehicle. Um, and, and in that environment, uh, does $7,500 really matter that much to those buyers? This is all kind of a, a little bit of a thought exercise more than, than a, a true economic uh, uh, harbinger. However, we're about to see the launch of a whole lot of mass market vehicles, um, most, a lot of them coming from U.S. manufacturers, both uh, from, from Jeep, from Stellantis, and from uh, the the Blazer EV is coming out from GM. Those types of vehicles are going to fall into the thirty five thousand dollar type uh, purchase price car, 
And when you get there, $7,500 really matters. So what, what's going to really matter the most is what when those vehicles come out in 2024 and, and really get pushed to large volume in 2025, what will be the state? And at that point, we're going to have the LG, GM, Ultium joint venture m- making over 100 gigawatt hours of batteries throughout the, the, this country. Uh, LG Stellantis will be making 35 gigawatt hours. Stellantis, Samsung, SDI will be making another 30. Um, and then Ford will have its CATL LFP plant making another 30 gigawatt hours. So, you know, right there, we've got almost 200 or maybe more than 200 gigawatt hours worth of production, which is going to satisfy 2025 needs. Okay. Now let's get into the weeds. So this question, you mentioned constituent materials, uh, it's wonky, but it has been controversial. I'll read you a quote here from Joe Manchin as of, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Because um, he has been, so there was this initial treasury guidance, I think in December, as you described, uh, or at least white paper, sorry. The guidance was was just now. And the white paper laid out this middle middle category of constituent materials, which you can describe in just a moment. The question is, do you classify those constituent materials uh, as critical minerals, or do you classify them as battery components? Turns out that's very controversial. Joe Manchin said, quote, it seems that Treasury is yet again ignoring the will of Congress by looking to blatantly expand the definition of a critical mineral to include constituent materials. So, and he again today after the guidance came out, um, blasted the guidance and said that sort of Biden is ignoring the intent of the law. So it's been controversial there from a political standpoint, but then also, you know, there's been a bunch of reporting of companies who are trying to build domestic cathode manufacturing who've come out strongly with uh, opinions about this as well. So let's talk about what the controversy has been and then where Treasury has landed on it. So what is a constituent material as Treasury has defined it? And why do we care which category it goes into? So in the battery supply chain, you go from the mine where you extract the minerals to multiple steps of precursor materials, in in most cases, for each one of these minerals, um, to the battery component itself, to the battery cell, right? And it's that middle part of all those precursor materials uh, that that is not has not been clear what where where it falls. So, and it's different, a little bit different for each of these materials. So, for instance, with um, with lithium, you start, let's say you're mining the hard rock in Australia, then you process it into lithium hydroxide. That's the actual st- mineral that's that's defined as a strategic mineral in the law, the, the hydroxide or the carbonate, the lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. Then you take that and um, you're going you're gonna to add it to a precursor cathode active material or PCAM to turn it into a cathode active material. And that's the actual cathode powder that's going to go to the battery factory. And that PCAM is not a mineral. It is a chemical. It's a precursor chemical. And the when you add the lithium to it and make the, the cathode active material, that what what is that? Is that a, a strategic mineral or a battery component? It's it's not not entirely clear from the law, the language of the law itself. You go into something like electrolyte and it gets even more complicated because now you have multiple finished chemicals such as the electrolyte salt, like LIPF6 or LIFSI, which goes through multiple precursor steps before that and multiple processing steps before that, only to make a component of a component, the electrolyte. 
And and each of those steps, how how are you going to make sh- how are you going to ensure that each of those steps is falling under, you know, the the whether it's the, the U.S. and free trade partner countries or North America or the U.S. itself, all all of that is is up for for uh, has been up for um, definition, which finally we we do have that definition. Um, but but it, it is, I mean. Uh, you know, we we can we can ridicule these these uh, politicians for making such an incredible octopus of of, of difficult and, and complicated regulations, but I you know I, I I respect them because they're trying to add a whole way of regulating and incentivizing an entire supply chain, and that's incredibly hard to do. Um, so I think what essentially what the guidance said was constituent materials, which is going to be any of these precursor steps up to the the battery component itself, essentially falls under strategic minerals as in the strategic minerals qualification. Um, Now, they added this 50% rule, which says at each step of processing, from from extraction to each of the processing steps that this, whatever the material you're talking about goes through, um, you... 50% 50% of the value has to have been added by a, a free trade partner country or in the U.S. itself. So, in other words, if you make the, if, if the lithium is mined in Australia, that counts. That's a free trade partner country. If it's processed in China, boom, it doesn't count because we're not, we don't have a free trade treaty with China. Um, what if it's processed in Korea? That counts. Um, if, and then if, and let's go away from lithium, cause that's the easiest one. That's only one step to a tr- shippable material, but something like, um, something like manganese, which has four separate stages of processing and refining. Um, it has to come, the, it has to be mined and then it has to be processed into electrolytic manganese metal in, in, and at least 50% of the value of that has to be done in, in a free trade partner country or the U.S. Then it has to be turned into manganese sulfate. Again, has to be done in a qualified country. Then it's turned into the, then it's combined with the nickel and the cobalt to make the PCAM. It has to be done in the right country. Then it's made into the cathode, has to be done in the right country, etc. And so you're, each each step along the way, you're allowed to add some element of, of, you know, something can be added from another country that's not qualified, but as long as 50% of the value added to that product in that processing step uh, counts, then it counts. So let's talk about Korea for a minute, Um, because I think this is where a lot of the controversy ultimately lies. So Imagine that you are a cathode material producer. In fact, imagine you're somebody like Redwood Materials who's building cathode manufacturing in the United States. If you had been qualified, if if cathode active materials, which is in this constituent materials category, had been considered as a battery component, then only North American production of cathode materials would count, and clearly that's a big advantage to you. But instead, because Treasury went the other direction and said constituent materials are more like critical minerals, it is U.S. or free trade agreement countries. And critically, I think, Korea is a free trade agreement country. And correct me if I'm wrong, Korea is where a lot of cathode manufacturing or anode 
material manufacturing takes place. So does that basically remove the incentive for domestic cathode and anode material manufacturing that otherwise would have been there? I wouldn't say it removes it, but it, it, it does place it on a level playing field with building a new plant in Korea or, or with Japan in the case of the new, uh, the new treaty with Japan. Um, so now if you, if you are going to build a new cathode plant, you have to choose, do I do it in North America or do I do it in Japan or Korea, basically? Um, you could do it in any one of those 14 countries that we have free trade agreements with, but there's not much advantage else, elsewhere to do it there. Um, what it does do is existing facilities in Korea and Japan will be able to qualify for, for, this, um, for this agreement. And that's, that's a big deal, because if they had to rebuild that production capacity in North America in 2023 they wouldn't have been able to do that. And that goes back to the Japan agreement. Um, essentially, my, my conspiracy theory is that essentially this was a, a bone that was thrown to Tesla because Tesla makes its battery cells in North America with Panasonic. It makes some of its materials in North America. The, 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 uh, the electrolyte is made here, the, the separator, the cans, some other things are made in North America. But... The cathode, which is by far the most expensive part of the battery, is made in Japan by Sumitomo Metals and Mining. And by, by, by sneaking this, this free trade agreement in, they allowed Tesla to qualify for the components um, and the, I'm sorry, they allowed them to qualify for the strategic minerals portion of the EV tax credit that otherwise they wouldn't have if Japan wasn't allowed. Okay, so... That's where this controversy has been. Clearly, the administration, or the Treasury at least, was kind of trying to thread this needle where, like, on one hand, you know, they're, the whole point of this legislation is to protect domestic manufacturing and build up a supply chain. On the other hand, there was clearly, they were, they were getting pushed, I think, both by our free trade agreement countries, possibly by auto manufacturers, maybe Tesla included, on this. And so they were sort of trying to figure out what the right solution was. They fell on this on this side of it, and we'll see what happens. Is this the, this is guidance. Is this what comes next? Like what's left to be done here? So I think the, this, there is one big hole in, in what we don't know, which is um, foreign entity of concern. And they did not give guidance on how they define foreign entity of concern for the purposes of the EV tax credit. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, they didn't give any guidance They they were asked very specifically is, do you, is a country, a foreign entity of concern? Do you have to name the company itself as a foreign entity of concern? And they wouldn't even say that. So there's, they still have another six months or so to, to provide that guidance. Um, and that's important because if you are today shipping your spodumene to China to be made into lithium hydroxide, um, then that's if 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 it, if China does turn out to be a foreign entity of concern, that will that will disqualify that material for for the tax credit. So right now it 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 is going to be qualified, but as soon as they they name specifically what they mean by foreign entity of concern, that could change. Is there realistically any possibility China is not a foreign entity of concern? I mean, isn't again to the point of the sort of like intent of the law? feels like pretty clearly a significant portion of the intent of the law is to shut China out of 
manufacturing of batteries for EVs in the U.S.? So the, the question is, will they say China overall is the foreign entity of concern, or will they, will they have to name specific companies within China as foreign entity of concern, and therefore, and then start playing a, a, you know, a, the game of the, you're in, you're out. Um, so that's going to be that's going to be kind of difficult to 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 do, but it it could you know they could look at companies that have a financial relationship with the central government would be quali- disqualified, and and private companies might not be. We'll see how that works out, or they could just say anything in China is off limits. So, putting back on your prognostication hat, then. What is your sense of what this guidance does to the market over the next, until until we get final clarity on everything? Everything proceeds apace as it had been. Does it divert any decisions, accelerate anything? I, I think it definitely, um, it definitely, so, so they're, they're, the, the, the regulators are, are walking a fine line between do we make this doable or do we make it too complex and, and take into account every little nuance, but then it's just too hard to, to qualify for these things? Or do we, make, do, do we make some broad brush measures and make it doable for the car makers to qualify? Um, and what I see in, in what they've done is that they've, they've erred toward the side of uh, broad brush measures. And by that, I mean, you know, specifically identifying constituent materials as strategic minerals and and therefore allowing for uh, not just U.S. production or North American production, but, but uh, you know, our, 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 an alliance of countries that, that is going to be able to make this happen. All right, Sam, as you said, it's an it's an octopus of, I don't remember what you call it, but I like, it's an octopus of complex regulation, but so is the battery industry. And that's why, uh, that's why we talk about it so much. Um, thank you for helping to illuminate it once again. All right. Thanks very much, Shale. Sam Jaffe is a longtime battery industry analyst and is now Senior Director of Business Development at Adionics. This show is a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. Head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topic. Latitude Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude backs visionaries accelerating climate innovation that will reshape the global economy for the betterment of people and planet. Learn more at preludeventures.com. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf. Mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand. Theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.